This world looks still too much like it did when it was part of an imperialistic empire. Our ability to access electric cars or our ability to access batteries or photovoltaic panels are constrained by those countries that have the dominant presence and can produce for themselves. But the global south remains at the mercy of the global north on these issues. There was and must be a commitment to unlocking concessional funding for climate vulnerable countries. There is no way that developing countries who have been graduated can fight this battle without access to concessional funding. Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we are going to do an in-depth special. The UN Conference on Climate is happening right now in Egypt. There is a lot of concern about it because uh, climate activists say that they're not able to protest as they usually do when these UN conferences uh, happen just because of the kind of government there is in Egypt and they're really not allowed to uh, have much of a presence or much of a protest. But we're going to be discussing with our guests what is going on, what has gone on thus far. And we're also going to be hearing the opening speech uh, by the Secretary General of the United Nations, Gutierrez. And we will also hear a speech by the Barbados Prime Minister, Mia Motley, who, as she did in Scotland, has made quite a stir at this UN conference. Our guest is Tina Gerhardt, environmental journalist who covers international climate negotiations, domestic energy policy, and sea level rise. She is covering the conference for The Nation magazine. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. Control of the U.S. Congress remains up in the air today as results from Tuesday's midterm election continue to be tallied. However, it appears increasingly likely that President Biden will spend the remaining two years of his term with a Republican-controlled House. Biden said he's willing to work with Republicans on areas of common interest. More from Feature Story News' Laura Macon Isherwood. Both the Republicans and Democrats are neck and neck, with U.S. President Joe Biden expressing relief as his party appears to have held off a predicted Republican wave. He said it was a good day for democracy. It didn't happen. And I know you were somewhat miffed by my uh, obsessive optimism, but uh, I felt good during the whole process. And we lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first midterm election in the last 40 years. The Republicans are, however, getting closer to taking control of the House. I'm Laura Makin Isherwood. The latest Labor Department inflation numbers are out today. They show that prices are still climbing, but at a slower rate than in prior months. 
Inflation reached 7.7% in October from a year earlier and 0.4% from September. The year-over-year gain was the smallest since January. Excluding volatile food and energy prices, so-called core inflation rose 6.3% in the past 12 months and 0.3% from September. The numbers were all lower than economists had expected. Despite the encouraging report, the Federal Reserve is still widely expected to keep raising interest rates, however, to try to stem persistently high price increases. Tropical storm Nicole made landfall as a hurricane today in Florida, but soon weakened to a tropical storm. The storm has covered nearly the entire Florida peninsula while reaching into Georgia and South Carolina. Central Florida is still experiencing tropical storm strength winds and heavy rain with a damaging coastal surge in places like Daytona Beach shores. The rare November hurricane led officials to shut down airports and theme parks and order evacuations. Nicole is expected to dump lots of rain over a large area of the southeastern U.S., with up to six inches falling over the Blue Ridge Mountains. Commuters in London are being warned to avoid the British capital's sprawling underground system as unionized underground workers declared a 24-hour strike today over job cuts and pensions. It's the sixth 24-hour strike this year. Large queues for buses formed in places, while Elizabeth Line and other train services were very busy. Transport for London has apologized for the disruption. It follows August's strike, where tube journeys were down 90%, as well as walkouts in June and March. However, it is thought that a number of people who normally commute into the city will work from home to avoid the disruption, much as they did during prior strikes. Ranchers and scientists are studying whether a smaller, more drought-resilient breed of cattle in the southwest could be more environmentally friendly than traditional cattle. Roz Brown has more. Originally from Spain, Ramiri Criollo cattle are smaller than Black Angus. They can also forage and thrive in arid climates to produce meat and don't mind eating brushy shrubs when grasses run low due to drought. New Mexico State University professor Glenn Duff is leading research to determine if crossbreeding the smaller cattle could be better for rangelands in the southwest. Cattle that utilize the landscape better would help out with grazing distribution and plant diversity. What's labeled a mega drought has gripped the southwestern U.S. for more than two decades. I'm Roz Brown. The Los Angeles School District is rolling out a climate literacy program to teach kids about the warming climate and its effects. As Mary Sherman reports, educators hope it will teach students to be better environmental stewards. Brittany Jefferson, a fifth grade teacher, explains to kids the philosophy held by many Native American tribes. The seventh generation principle is you are to treat the land and the resources in a way so that seven generations after you will be able to also live off of the land. Students learn about global warming, but they also live with its effects in the form of drought, smoky skies due to wildfires, and even a recent storm in Southern California caused by remnants of a hurricane. Mary Sherman reporting. San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins declared victory Wednesday in the race to stay in her job. Election officials were still counting ballots and her opponents hadn't yet conceded, but Jenkins said she's secured enough support. The early figures show that Jenkins has 48% of the votes. Her closest opponent, John Hamasaki, had about 34% of the vote. I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio.
those were our news headlines. And this is a slightly hoarse uh, Margaret Prescott here, host of Sojourner Truth. And I'd now like to introduce our guest that will be with us for the hour. Uh, Tina Gerhardt is an environmental journalist who covers international climate negotiations, domestic energy policy, and sea level rise. Her work has been published by the American Prospect, Grist, The Progressive, the Nation, Sierra, and the Washington Monthly. Tina is the author of the forthcoming book, Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean on Islands Globally and the Impact of Sea Level Rise on Them. She is covering this UN conference known as COP27 for The Nation magazine. Tina, welcome. Oh, thanks so much, Margaret. It's great to be with you as always. And I'm joining you on being slightly hoarse. Okay, there you go. Tina, I'm really looking forward to your book on islands in a rising ocean. As you know, I am from that small island nation, now a Republic Barbados. So, so very much looking forward to that. Tina, before we go to hear the UN Secretary General's speech and followed by the Barbados Prime Minister's speech. Why COP27? A lot of people don't, you know, uh, in our audience may not know why that, what that is (laughs) and why that name, Tina. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the question. I mean, these UN climate negotiations, they happen every year, but they're filled with their own incredible jargon that you, you know, you almost need another degree to just be able to piece that, you know, <laughs> together and, and understand it. So let me try to just briefly uh, break some of that down before we get into it. So on, on Sunday, this past Sunday, November 6th, there's a two-week climate negotiations that kicked off. They're taking place this year in Sharm el-Sheikh, which is a resort town in Egypt. They expect about 35,000 or over 35,000 people to be attending. That'll be delegates, uh, eventually heads of state too, but initially delegates, NGO workers, journalists, and then also activists from around the world. There's about 120 heads of state that have said that they will join, um, including President Biden. They typically fly in for the final days. But let me get into your question about what is COP27? What is that name? And just break down some of that stuff. This is called COP, C-O-P in all caps, because it stands for Conference of the Parties. And before your listeners ears glaze over, eyes glaze over, ears muffle. (laughs) Basically, it's a conference of the parties. A party is a nation that is part of these negotiations. So that's the COP part. It's basically this gathering of nations. 27, because this is the 27th meeting. So we call it COP 27. Other ways of referring to it is the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change or UNFCCC, um, or just simply the UN Climate Negotiations. Yeah, I I prefer UN climate negotiations. Uh, And frankly, you know, 35,000 people, 120 heads of state, that's a lot of a a lot of security. Has anybody ever done an estimate about the cost? I mean, this is 20, the 27th. Last year was in Scotland. Has anybody done an assessment of how much each cop costs, as far as you know. That, I love the angle of the question (laughs) because, I mean, the costs are crucial to consider, but people often grouse or complain about all of this flying around in the CO2 emissions. And so I've heard that as a critique often. I think this question about the economics is a really crucial one, given that, you know, not having money 
to address climate change is often an issue that's brought up. I don't know that I've seen such such an analysis done. Yeah, it's a really good yeah. question. I mean, if you count that 27 times, I mean, maybe that would yeah. be close to the amount or in part that the Global South needs. And we're going to be hearing a lot about, Tina, about this call for climate reparations and who will pay for mitigation of climate. But let us go right now to hear the opening remarks by the UN Secretary General Gutierrez. In just days, our planet's population will cross a new threshold. The eight billionth member of our human family will be born. These milestones puts into perspective what this climate conference is all about. How will we answer when baby 8 billion is old enough to ask? What did you do for our world and for our planet when you had the chance? Excellencies, this UN climate conference is a reminder that the answer is in our hands. And the clock is ticking. We are in the fight of our lives and we are losing. Greenhouse gas emissions keep growing. Global temperatures keep rising. And our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. The war in Ukraine, other conflicts, have caused so much bloodshed and violence and their dramatic impacts all over the world. But we cannot, we cannot accept that our attention is not focused on climate change. We must, of course, work together to support peace efforts and then the tremendous suffering. But climate change is on a different timeline and a different scale. It is a defining issue of our age. It is the central challenge of our century. It is unacceptable, outrageous and self-defeating to put it on the back burner. Indeed, many of today's conflicts are linked with growing climate chaos. And the war in Ukraine has exposed the profound risks of our fossil fuel addiction. And today's crisis cannot be an excuse for backsliding or greenwashing. If anything, there are a reason for greater urgency, stronger action, and effective accountability. Excellencies, human activity is the cause of the climate problem, so human action must be the solution. Action to re-establish ambition and action to rebuild trust, especially between North and South. The science is clear. Any hope of limiting temperature rise to 1.5 degrees means achieving global net zero emissions by 2050. But that 1.5 degree goal is on life support and the machines are rattling. We are getting dangerously close to the point of no return. And to avoid that dire fate, all G20 countries must accelerate their transition now in this decade. Developed countries must take the lead, but emerging economies are also critical to bending the global emissions curve. Last year in Glasgow, 
I called for coalitions of support for high-emitting emerging economies to accelerate the transition from coal towards renewables. We are making progress with the Just Energy Transition Partnerships, but much more is needed. And that is why at the beginning of COP27, I'm calling for a historic pact between developed and developing economies, and especially developed and emerging economies, a climate solidarity pact. A pact in which all countries make an extra effort to reduce emissions this decade in line with 1.5 degree goal. A pact in which wealthier countries and international financial institutions provide financial and technical assistance to help emerging economies speed their own renewable energy transition. A pact when dependence on fossil fuels and the building of new coal plants, phasing out coal in OECD countries by 2030 and everywhere else by 2040. A pact that will provide universal, affordable, sustainable energy for all. A pact in which developed and emerging economies unite around a common strategy and combine capacities and resources for the benefit of humankind. The two largest economies, the United States and China, have a particular responsibility to join efforts to make this pact a reality. And this is our only hope of meeting our climate goals. Humanity has a choice, cooperate or perish. It is either a climate solidarity pact or a collective suicide pact. Excellence. We also need progress in adaptation in order to reinforce resilience to climate change now and in the future. Today, around three and a half billion people are living in highly vulnerable countries, vulnerable to climate change. In Glasgow, in developed countries promised to double their contributions between now and 2025. We need a roadmap for implementation also. We need to recognize that this is a first stage. Adaptation resources must exceed 300 million per year by 2030. Half of the climate change funding must be focused on adaptation. International financial institutions and global development banks need to change their economic models and they need to do their share to boost adaptation models. They must serve as tools to lever more financial resources to serve efforts to fight climate change. Countries and communities must have access to that funding, which must be funneled to key initiatives such as through the Adaptation Pipeline Accelerator. We must acknowledge a harsh truth. There is no adapting to a growing number of catastrophic events causing enormous suffering around the world. The deadly impacts of climate change are here and now. Loss and damage can no longer be swept under the rug. It is a moral imperative. It is a fundamental question of international solidarity and climate justice. Those who contributed least to the climate crisis are reaping the whirlwind sown by others. And many are blindsided by impacts for which they had no warning or means of preparation. This is why I'm calling for a universal early warning system coverage within five years. 
And it is why I am asking that all governments tax the windfall profits of fossil fuel companies. Let's redirect that money to people struggling with rising food and energy prices and to countries suffering loss and damage caused by the climate crisis. On addressing loss and damage, this COP must agree on a clear time-bound roadmap reflective of the scale and urgency of the challenge. And this roadmap must deliver effective institutional arrangements for financing. Getting concrete results on loss and damage is a litmus test of the commitment of the governments to the success of COP27. Excellencies and friends, the good news is that we know what to do and we have the financial and technological tools to get the job done. It is time for nations to come together for implementation. It is time for international solidarity across the board. Solidarity that respects all human rights and guarantees. A safe space for environmental defenders and all actors in society to contribute to our climate response. Let's not forget that the war on nature is itself a massive violation of human rights. We need all hands on deck for faster, bolder climate action. A window of opportunity remains open, but only a narrow shaft of light remains. The global climate fight will be won or lost in this crucial decade on our watch. And one thing is certain, those that give up are sure to lose. So let's fight together and let's win for the 8 billion members of our human family and for generations to come. Thank you. All righty. There you heard from the UN Secretary General Gutierrez at the opening of the UN Framework on Climate or the UN Climate Conference. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and we're spending the hour focusing on that UN conference. You know, the world facing a disaster. You, you heard what the UN Secretary General has said, a lot of which we have heard before. But let's see how it goes. What we're going to do now is we're going to hear from the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley Barbados, of course, the world's youngest uh, republic when it broke uh, from the UK, from the Queen, and I suppose now it would have been the King last fall. And uh, Mia Motley, she made quite a stir at last year's climate a UN climate conference that was held in Glasgow and Scotland, and she has made a stir again. It seems as though she is really voicing uh, the hopes of a number of not only small islands, but also um, other uh, countries in the global south that are paying a very high price for climate change and climate disaster. Let us go to hear from Mia right now, who focuses in on the money, on the loss and damage fund. Let's hear from Mia now. I came here to say a few things, but the chorus that we've had from this stage has been clear. I don't need to repeat that we have the power of choice. Every speaker on this platform has done that. I don't need to repeat that this is the cop that needs action. All of us as a chorus have said that. 
I don't need to repeat the horror and the devastation wrecked upon this earth over the course of the last 12 months since we met in Glasgow. Whether the apocalyptic floods in Pakistan or the heat waves from Europe to China or indeed in the last few days in my own region the devastation caused in Belize by Tropical Storm Lisa or the torrential floods a few days ago in St. Lucia. We don't need to repeat it because a picture spoke a thousand words earlier. But what we do need to do is to understand why, why we are not moving any further. 1.5 to stay alive cannot be that mantra. And I take no pride in being associated with having to repeat it over and over and over. We have the collective capacity to transform. We're in the country that built pyramids. We know what it is to remove slavery from our civilization. We know what it is to be able to find a vaccine within two years when a pandemic hits us. We know what it is to put a man on the moon and now we put in Rover on Mars. We know what it is. But the simple political will that is necessary not just to come here and make promises, but to deliver on them and to make a definable difference in the lives of the people who we have a responsibility to serve seems still not to be capable of being produced. I ask us how many more and how much more must happen. And I say so because there is no simplicity in it. We get it. I come from a small island state that has high ambition, but that is not able to deliver on that high ambition because the global industrial strategy that we have has fault lines in it. Our ability to access electric cars or our ability to access batteries or photovoltaic panels are constrained by those countries that have a dominant presence and can produce for themselves, but the global south remains at the mercy of the global north on these issues. But it isn't only in that. We heard Al Gore just now speak about the difference in the cost of capital to those of us in the global south. And I ask us, how many more people must speak before those of us who have the capacity to instruct our directors at the World Bank, is that called the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development only for the 20th century? At the IMF, which has, at least has been trying more than the World Bank? How many more countries must falter, particularly in a world that is now suffering the consequences of war and inflation and countries therefore are unable to meet the challenges of finding the necessary resources to finance their way to net zero. This world looks still too much like it did when it was 
part of an imperialistic empire. The global north borrows between interest rates of between 1 to 4%. The global south of 14%. And then we wonder why the just energy partnerships are not working. Similarly, we ask ourselves if countries that want to finance their way to net zero and want to do the right thing can't get the critical supplies, will they not have to rely again on natural gas as that clean bridge? This is the ball reality. And we have come here to ask us to open our minds to different possibilities. We believe that we have a plan. We believe that there can be the establishment of a climate mitigation trust that unlocks $5 trillion of private sector savings if we can summon the will to use the SDRs, 500 billion of SDRs, special drawing rights, in a way that unlocks the private sector capital. We believe that that requires a change in the attitude of Congress. Because the agreement that establishes the International Monetary Fund requires 85% to change that agreement. And if the United States government has 17% of the quota, then it can't be done, Mr. Gore, without your Congress. Similarly, we accept that there was and must be a commitment to unlocking concessional funding for climate vulnerable countries. There is no way that developing countries who have been graduated can fight this battle without access to concessional funding. We heard it on this stage from my, the head of my old alma mater at LSE. We believe that it is critical that we address the issue of loss and damage. The talk must come to an end. And I'd like to salute Denmark and Belgium and Scotland for their own modest ways of trying to accept the precepts and principles of loss and damage as critical and as morally just. But for loss and damage to work, we believe that it can't only be an issue of asking state parties to do the right thing, although they must. But we believe that the non-state actors and the stakeholders, the oil and gas companies, and those who facilitate them, need to be brought into a special convocation between now and COP28. How do companies make $200 billion in profits in the last three months and not expect to contribute at least 10 cents in every dollar of profit to a loss and damage fund. This is what our people expect. And I ask us, as we reflect on what a loss and damage fund can look like and who should access it, that we convene a special convocation that doesn't only involve state parties, but non-state actors such as the same companies. We believe as well that the time has come for the introduction of natural disaster and pandemic clauses in our debt instruments. I have said that if Barbados is hit tomorrow, because we have natural disaster clauses, God forbid if we are hit tomorrow, 
we unlock 18% of GDP over the next two years because what we do is effectively put a pause on all of our debt and put it at the end for two years and put it at the end and we pay back that money at the end. But what we get is the flexibility in the first two years to address issues of damage and loss. And finally, we believe that the multilateral development banks have to reform. Yes, it is time for us to revisit Bretton Woods. Yes, it is time for us to remember that those countries who sit in this room today did not exist at the time that the Bretton Woods institutions were formed for the most part. And therefore, we have not seen, we have not been heard sufficiently. And if we are therefore to rise to the occasion to play our part to stop the tragic loss of life that we have seen on these screens and the impact on livelihoods that we are feeling across our countries, then there needs to be a new deal with respect to the Bretton Woods institutions. And we need to ensure that they have a different view to their risk appetite, that we look at the SDRs, and that we look at other innovative ways to expand the lending that is available from billions to trillions. My friends, the time is running out on us. And yes, we have the power of choice. When asked what should he do when he became president of South Africa? Should he pursue a path of vengeance or should he seek to build a state? Nelson Mandela chose to be able to build a state and to keep a country together. He chose blessings instead of curse because he believed that it would make a defining difference. When given the choice of how to treat to post-war Europe, President Truman settled the Marshall Plan that made the definable difference to the countries that were responsible, yes, for the destruction of so much and for the loss of life of so many. But in spite of that, they choose, they chose to rise above it. I ask us today, what will our choice be? We have the power to act or the power to remain passive and do nothing. I pray that we will leave Egypt with a clear understanding that the things that are facing us today are all interconnected. I thank President El-Sisi for his comments that there needs to be peace because countries like ours continue to suffer as a result of a war that we have no part of and a war that we want to see come to an end. Our people on this earth deserve better. And what is more, our leaders know better. Because while many of us may not have been alive during the great wars, the consequences of those wars still live with us. And we have the capacity to choose differently. I ask the people of the world and not just the leaders, therefore, to hold us accountable and to ask us to act in your name to save this earth and to save the people of this earth. The choice is ours. What will you do?
what will you choose to save? Thank you. Wow. Prime Minister Mia Motley of Barbados, we are going to have to take a pause for a short station break, but we're going to be unpacking. Mia Motley said quite a lot. So did Gutierrez, the Secretary General of the UN, with our guest, Tina Gerhardt, who is an environmental journalist, and she is covering this COP27, which is the UN Climate Conference for the Nation magazine. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You're going to want to hear what she has to say. This is Brother Cornell West, and you are listening to Sojourner Truth with host, my dear sister, Margaret Prescott. Welcome back to Sojourner Truth. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And we are heard nationwide and worldwide 24-7. You can, it's a free download on SoundCloud. Today, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the San Francisco um, and indeed the entire Bay Area, including Oakland and Berkeley in the United States. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Sweden, our SoundCloud listeners in Sweden. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And we are doing a special, a deep dive into what is happening at the UN conference on climate. It's the 27th one called COP27. It is being held in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, and the location itself is controversial. But our guest is Tina Gerhardt, environmental journalist who covers international climate negotiations, domestic energy policy, and sea level rise. She has a new book that's coming out, Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean on Islands Globally and the Impact of Sea Level Rise on Them. And she is covering COP27 for The Nation magazine. So, Tina, we heard a lot there from the Secretary General uh, Gutierrez, and then we heard a lot more from the Barbados Prime Minister. There's really a lot to unpack there. Did Gutierrez say anything new <laughs> that he didn't say in COP26? For example, what, what's new, if anything, in what he said? Tina? Yeah, thanks so much, Margaret. I think, I mean, 
those were both really powerful speeches. And there's so much, there is so much, as you said, to unpack. I mean, I could listen to Mia Motley, give her analyses uh, anytime. <laughs> They're just so fantastic. I think, you know, I want to unpack a little bit more of what Mia Motley was saying. But I think what Guterres was saying that's new at this conference, and we can talk about this a little bit more after I say some things also about Mia Motley's speech, is that he's really focused on the loss and damages that nations from the global north owe to the global south, which she also underscored a lot in her speech. So I think that's the big point and the big answer to your question, the big, you know, think takeaway and something to watch for this year's UN Climate Conference. Just to unpack a couple things from Mia Motley's speech. So let me give some some context for, for your listeners. Barbados in 2017 had the third highest debt per capita of any country in the world. It was spending about 55 percent of its gross domestic product each year just to pay back debts. And much of this was to foreign banks and to investors. And they were so that's 55%. They were only able to spend as a result of that 5% on environmental programs and healthcare. So those two numbers tell a really big story. That was in 2017. In 2018, Mia Motley was elected as prime minister. She's been in office, as you said, since and she also did mention that she's an LSE grad. Um, and I think her economic analyses are, are really important to unpack, to track, but also to unpack in, in more detail. So she said at some point in the speech we listened to, this really still looks like empire to me. And I think in these in these talks, we um, in the coverage of the UN climate negotiations, we hear references in terms of the money owed by the global north to the global south to the history of colonialism, the inequities that that has created that then continued into imperialism. But I think what's really important is something that she mentioned, which is she keeps talking about Bretton Woods. So if your listeners aren't familiar, that was a 1944 conference. It was held right before World War II ended, and it led to the establishment of both the World Bank and also the IMF. And those are two institutions that give money to nations when they need it, but the strings that are attached are really intense. So they often require nations to privatize. If you have any public systems like, I don't know, a working public transportation system so you can get to work or a functioning healthcare system that doesn't create, you know, huge amounts of independent debt or a functioning education system that also doesn't require people to go into debt. All of those systems in order to get the loans are often something that have to be privatized. And this this has happened to nations around the world. Then those nations that have taken those loans have privatized systems. So their, you know, their citizens, their residents end up more in debt. They are also in debt and they have to pay back these loans often at exorbitant interest rates. So you see nations really crippled by both national debt, but also individualized debt. And that's exactly what she was talking about when she mentioned Bretton Woods. And just to conclude on this point, and then I'm happy to talk more about loss and damages. She said with, um, you know, with these kinds of loans, you need 
85% to change how these systems work. You have an 85% voting system to change any of the policies regarding some of these loans from, from um, I think she was talking about the IMF in that case. But she said the US, this is what Mia Motley said, they have a 17% vote. She's like, how are we going to change anything? I mean, if all the countries who are faced with this kind of debt had an equal say, obviously the rules could be changed, but they don't even have equal voting rights. So this is the issue that there was a really great article. If your listeners want to do a deep dive into this specific issue and really learn a lot more about her economic training, her current economic advisors, and the incredible subtle work that she's doing behind the scenes right now to really revamp systems radically. I would encourage listeners to look up an article by Abram Lustgarten, L-U-S-T-G-A-R-T-E-N is his last name that was published. It's titled The Barbados Rebellion, and it was published this summer by the New York Times. And it's a long read. It's not a short article, but it's an incredible read that really gets into the details of what she's trying to change. And it's an incredible project that she's working on. It goes way beyond Barbados. Right. And for those who are wondering also, thank you for explaining Bretton Woods, 44 nations at the time, you know, involved um, with that deal, by the way. When she mentioned a graduate of LSE, that's the London School of Economics, okay, just to bring our our listeners along here. Well, I I really want to focus a bit more on this following the money, because I was reading an article, I think it's Reuters uh, reported that the world's leading development banks that they have lent, and I underscore lent, $51 billion to poor uh, countries in, in 2021, and private investors, $13 billion. You know, that's a, uh, from a report about the, the bank's climate efforts, et cetera. You know, Tina, I have a real problem with this business about the Global North lending the Global South money to, you know, for climate mitigation and for a number of things. Uh, to me, for obvious reasons, because most of the damage that's done to the climate doesn't happen in the Global South, except you want to count the big nations like, you know, China, India, but these small islands like Barbados, the Caribbean islands, et cetera, far from it. So I have a whole issue with who owes what to whom to begin with. And, you know, it it just seems as though, I mean, even Mia's proposal about, well, you know, we could have this, uh, this fund or this mitigation, I can't recall how she put it. And then the natural disaster clauses, a pause in, in paying the debt, for two years and then repaying it at the end. And you're right, Barbados was, you know, in deep debt, you know, only 5% on healthcare and, and the environment. I don't know how much discussion happens at the level of state governments about what it seems to me to be this disparity about who owes what to whom, or is this really a discussion happening more at the activist uh, level? There's even the term climate reparations uh, that's being uh, thrown around. And of course, a lot of discussion happening on reparations generally for people of African descent and indigenous people. Christina, what, what are you hearing in terms of that whole discussion. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that question. Because I think that she did say pause on debt. But you know, I was as I was following along, I was also writing in my notes, you know, and she has advocated this as other people have, 
Precisely for the reasons that you're mentioning, which I entirely agree with, um, you know, erase it. I mean, don't just pause it, but consider erasing it, right? In terms of in lines with what you were saying about who owes what to whom. I mean, it's, you know, Haiti is obviously one of the most egregious examples of having had debt and having been forced uh, to pay it back because it declared its independence, right? How dare. And I think this issue of who owes what to whom is at the heart of the issue of loss and damages that I think, aside from human rights violations, are really the two issues that people should should follow at the UN climate negotiations. So loss and damages. So typically, the UN climate negotiations focus on two things. All the nations around the world supposedly try to ratchet up their commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which are the cause of global warming. And they're supposed to increase those commitments year on year. That was decided last year because it's so urgent. Why, you know, why not increase them every year? The other thing they're supposed to do is talk about transferring both money and technology, which gets into copyrights and who has the money to, you know, do research and development. They're supposed to transfer money and technology from the so-called global north to the so-called global south, which is disproportionately experiencing these impacts for specifically mitigation and adaptation. Again, a lot of UN you know, terminology being thrown out here. Mitigation means anything you do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, throwing solar panels you know, up somewhere, shifting to, to renewables like wind. Adaptation means there's already impacts that are happening and you've decided to take some action to respond to them. That could be something like managed retreat. You pull back from the coastline, an entire village moves or individual houses have to move, or you build seawalls or you restore oyster reefs or you know coral reefs, things like this. Those two things, the reducing greenhouse gas emissions and this money for um, mitigation adaptation are the main focus. But this year, loss and damage is the real focus. And loss and damage refers to something that's even more severe. It's kind of like the name suggests. So loss deals with any loss that has already happened because of climate change. We can think about the floods in Pakistan this summer, which has left a third of the country underwater and killed over 1,700 people. We can think of this ongoing drought that's taking place in Africa right now that has over a million people displaced and has led to thousands of deaths in Africa. So, you know, these are examples of of loss and damage is basically when damages occurred that are so egregious and so intense, we could think of crop failure in either of the geographic examples I just mentioned. They really can't be remedied very quickly. So loss and damage is something where nations of the global south are asking for money from the global north because they have, and this comes full circle to the points you were making about who owes what to whom and why should we even talk about debt in the way that I framed it at the outset, you know, in terms of Barbados's debt. So lots and damage is really the global south looking for money from the global north because they have historically benefited from higher fossil fuel emissions and colonialism and imperialism. And those impacts have disproportionately been felt in the global south. So there's all of these inequities that are really being called out right now by the UN Climate Conference in ways that haven't quite happened previously. The attempt to get loss and damage in the negotiations is a 30-year effort. And this year, for the first time, the conference uh, was supposed to open this past weekend. It was delayed by a day specifically because people were lobbying to get loss and damage in the draft text 
for the agenda. Last year, loss and damage was a huge sticking point. So people, you know, there's nations in the global south that have kind of given up on the money for mitigation and adaptation. It's it's not an either or. I don't want to say that. But they've kind of given up on that part. And they're already experiencing these effects and they really need the money. So this is, you know, this is call it climate reparations as you did. I think that's, you know, that's a very fair way to put it. But it, it's much larger when people think of climate change as only an environmental issue. It's so much larger than that. It really does get into, you know, history of colonialism, of imperialism and of ongoing inequities. Yeah. And, and Mia actually directly said the world today looks like a colonial empire, and, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's what we're really discussing when we look. I mean, I'm, I'm so outraged by all of it. I mean, not only the destruction that's going on of the climate, but this, this kind of inequity. And then those of us from places like Barbados, um, and other parts of the global South being seen as charity cases, like we need some kind of loan or quote unquote, a handout. But frankly speaking, you know, it is mm-hmm. our work and the work of our ancestors mm-hmm. that uh, really built these empires, the Absolutely. United States, as well as as well as the UK. But quickly, I'm looking at the clock, Tina. Just before I ask the next question, I'm hoping that we'll be able to have you back because there's a lot that we didn't get to, and I'm likely going to be able to just fit in one other one other question. So I'm really hoping that you will come back to us and we'll have a more in-depth discussion around. Absolutely. These. That'd be great. Okay. But meanwhile, Mia Motley, she did mention a few nations that have now agreed to put some money in for loss and damage. Denmark, Belgium, Scotland, the United States, zero, zilch from what I understand. Is that right? And are there any other countries, as far as you know, that have now gotten on board and willing to contribute to this loss and damage fund? Tina Gerhardt? Yeah, I mean, that's... Thanks. Thanks for that, that follow up question. So today is, is finance day. There's like themes for the different days of the two weeks. So today is finance day and, um, different world leaders did pipe up and say they were going to commit to the loss and damage fund. Um, Scotland last year, which hosted last year's, uh, UN conference said that they would, they would, uh, contribute and they were the first to step up again this year. Other entities that stepped up, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission said that they would contribute. Ireland has said that they would contribute $10 million. Austria said that they would pay about 50 million euros, which right now is about $50 million. Belgium, 2.5 million. So you can go down this list. Um, the issue with this, there are other countries, and you're absolutely right that the uh, the U.S. did not offer to contribute. Al Gore, a former vice president of the U.S., said, let's be really clear here. This is a matter of billions and tens of billions of dollars. This is not a matter of millions. So I think, you know, nations that were jumping in right away and contributing also realized that the pressure was going to be on them to do something and that that pressure to do something was only going to increase in terms of the monetary demand, the numbers that was demanded of them as time went on. The U.S. last year came under a lot of pressure because John Kerry, who's the climate envoy for these negotiations, he basically... I don't want to put it on him. The U.S. is basically hedging, making a commitment to setting up a mechanism, a facility. There's all these words that get used, but some entity 
that processes monies for loss and damages because it makes the global north liable for loss and damages related to climate change. Well, as we can all see from what's happened the last year and the last years and the last decades, those impacts are intensifying and they're only going to increase. So if you set up this mechanism, you're basically making yourself financially liable for amounts that are just literally unfathomable right now. So I think, you know, there's there's a bit of hedging going on here just to avoid being economically liable for something that one should be economically liable for. Other moves that I've seen happen already, and you know, this conference just started. Um, the U.S. was suggesting, and this happened yesterday. John Kerry, I, I believe, announced this was was suggesting that maybe companies should be on the hook for these kinds of loss and damages, and not nations. Which to me sounds like an interesting shell game because yeah, you know, I'd it's say, a- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, Tina, looking, I'm getting a, a note here because we sadly are going to have to leave it there until, you know, we have you join us next. But the amounts may seem unfathomable, but what is the alternative? And countries of the global north, I mean, you just have to look at the destruction of Ian and the stronger storm Sandy, what happened in, in, in Europe just this past, some of the fires that are going on. So in, you know, quote unquote, helping the global south, they're really helping themselves, right? So Absolutely. Absolutely. They Absolutely. Will. Yeah. So I want to thank you for joining us. I know you have oh, a, my a pleasure. cold. My pleasure. I hope you feel a bit better. Likewise. I that, likewise. <laughs> I hope we're able to speak again soon. Thank you so very much for joining us. Good to join you, Margaret. Take care. Okay. We are out of time today. Show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, our board op for today. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! Sojourner Truth. We'll be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening and you all please stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.